Hello and welcome to episode three of the Cody Krillman Calvet podcast. I have some bad news, you guys. We had a fast fall from the rankings today. Uh, we were at 51 yesterday on the Canadian charts and I'm down to 150 now. But don't worry, I had a little bit of good news uh, this morning. Somebody had sent a screenshot from the American playlist on the iTunes store in the science and medicine category, and I think I was like top 25, uh, just behind Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast. So that's pretty exciting, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's been doing things for a long time, so I can't I can't complain about that. I checked the the science and medicine category for Canada, and we are sitting top 11. So I super appreciate you guys listening, and it has been a fun ride so far. I'm feeling super enthused. This, uh, I'm not going to say this podcasting thing is easy, but after two and a half years of vlogging, putting together a podcast is simple in comparison, like the post-production. Uh, I just... odd. I just modulate a little bit of audio and post it compared to a vlog, which typically I'd have about an hour or so footage to sort through and then the editing and then the audio modulation and all of that fun stuff. Usually each vlog, I've never gotten faster at doing a vlog. Each vlog typically takes me around four hours to do, although I've had some vlogs that have been up to 16 hours. How do I fit that all in? I just do everything at night. So I made a conscious decision when I started down my road of digital storytelling that I didn't want it to take away from my family. And certainly it has from some respects. I remember I was probably like 15 vlogs in when Diana said, so essentially you're never coming to bed again. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, okay. She's been super supportive. Like she has, uh, you know, seen how enthused I am with this, and she has supported me every step of the way. But yeah, that's where I fit it in. Usually, once Diana goes to bed, then I break out the laptop and start editing. Sometimes I'll start editing when uh, we're we're sitting there watching some Netflix. And there was this interview, I don't know if you guys know James Harriet or, or Alf White, the, the writer of the James Harriet novels, so this is the Yorkshire tales of a, of a veterinarian in the 50s and 60s, I believe it was, and there might have even been some pre-war era, because he was certainly in the war, and I, I remember so vividly because it drew a, like a big parallel to my life. Uh, but I, I guess I started this earlier in my career. I think he was in his fifties and he was sitting at the supper table with his wife, uh, lamenting for the umpteenth time that he should really start writing his books that he had always dreamed of writing. He had written journals all of his life. So he had all of these stories written down and his wife looked at him and said, well, if you haven't started now, you'll never start. And he just got all stubborn and stuff and was like, okay, I'm starting. 
You wrote several books or, I guess, manuscripts first and sent them into publishers. They said it was absolute crap. Uh, he kind of revamped the story, started writing it from a different perspective, a different voice, and started typing away. And he said in this interview that while his wife was watching TV, he would break out the typewriter, and that's when he had time to write all of his books. And I just, like, I see that parallel, this of uh, 60 years, 70 years later, although I guess he would have written them later because, yeah, so let's say like 40 years later, 30 years later, uh, here I am with my laptop sitting there with my wife pounding out the vlogs. But yeah, the, I really like the podcast medium. It's been It's been really good. Today I took my little son out for swimming after work. I didn't have him at work today. I had, uh, he had play school and then I had a, a babysitter. So I forewent bedtime at seven o'clock and took him out swimming from 7.30 to 8.30. The reason that I bring that up is, is a couple different things. With kids, it's so amazing at like how they distill all of your best and worst qualities of your spouse and you in them. Like Emerson and and my daughter Neve, they are spectacular children. They are incredibly smart. They are incredibly articulate. And I'm not saying that I'm incredibly smart or incredibly articulate, but they just like, they get that from their mom. But they are just like refined and distilled all of your good qualities down into these little beings. But on the flip side... They also have all of your worst qualities <laughs> distilled down into the Emerson is the world's worst pesterer, and so am I. But he's like refined. He's an old pro. He knows how to get you going like nobody's business. I get a lot of comments. You guys have sent in a lot of comments all the time, and I always have this like pinch of guilt for for when you comment this, I, I see it in almost every video that the kids are in that that Diana and I are such wonderful parents, uh, providing these children with such a spectacular life and how well adjusted and well rounded they are. And in actuality, in real life, you know, Diana and I feel like we're barely keeping it together every single day. Uh, certainly, you guys get to see the good moments, the the the, the precious moments. And you don't get to see us losing our temper. I edit those out. So we're just regular parents trying to figure this out as we go. Uh, I feel like we fail 99% of the time and 1% of the time we get things right. Uh, it's, a, it's a challenge. It is an absolute challenge. So the first topic today that I wanted to talk about was, was a viewer request. So this is a follower who uh, the day before I did the first podcast had wanted me to speak about my road to veterinary school. Her name is Aaliyah. She just finished her first year and I've had Snapchat correspondence with her throughout the year. And she told me that I need to tell my story and I need to get out some of my advice to the rest of the world because she said that I've given her uh, pearls of wisdom, not perils of wisdom, pearls of wisdom and I don't think that I'm very wise I've just gone through the experience I've, I've lived it 
And she wanted me to to kind of recap my story because she's having a hard time. And I certainly had a hard time as well. So I'll kind of give you guys a little bit of background as to my, my road to vet school, which was fraught with failure. Mm-hmm. So I was 16 before I ever considered veterinary medicine. Uh, before that, uh, long before that, I grew up on a ranch. My dad was a cattle buyer. My mom was a, was a commercial house painter and the farmer's daughter. And my parents divorced when I was 13. I grew up as a typical farm kid. Probably thought at that point that I was going to be a, a farmer uh, once I was done school. And my parents divorced at 13, and we moved back to my mom's hometown. And all of a sudden, overnight, I became an honor student. I had never been academic at all. Um, I, I am far from the smartest. But it started to open up, I guess, little pin pinges of, is that a word? Pinges? Little cracks of potential opportunity. And I never considered veterinary medicine. And there was this girl on my school bus who I'd helped her dad lots on his farm. And she had done a work experience program at the local vet clinic. And she knew me well and she knew that I was good with animals. And she said, Cody, I really think it would be a great opportunity if you went and did a work experience placement at the local vet clinic. So I thought, okay, that sounds wonderful. And I walked into that vet clinic. I'd I had signed up for a full semester to be there every morning uh, during this this school day. And I remember walking in and I just feel this general impression of falling in love instantly. Just from the very first day, it solidified that this was something that I wanted to do. It, I got that fire, that bug, the fever of this, this was it. And what I actually fell in love with was the chaos. I fell in love with the never knowing what was going to come in the door. You didn't know if it was going to be a fetotomy or a semen test or a, a, a hit by car dog or lancing abscesses. You just, you never knew what that was going to bring. And I loved that so incredibly much. And in retrospect, looking back, another part of it that I love so much of it uh, that that didn't make sense till later in my life, uh, you know, just a few years ago, was I remember I was late for my my first block. It was the after lunch block, and I was late almost every time. And I remember I'd walk into the classroom just covered in blood and pus, and my hands and arms are stained with iodine scrub. And my English teacher, she saw something. In, in that, she would stop the class every single day and she would get me to recount my story. Uh, Cody, why are you late today? But in a very good hearted way. So I, she would stop the class and I would tell them my story at the vet clinic. So you guys can see now uh, that that was ingrained in me from the start in terms of in terms of that storytelling of something that I was so passionate about. So I enrolled into pre-veterinary, uh, the program at, at the local university, which was about seven hours away from my home. And my first year, like I, I was a little bit younger. Uh, I was 17 when I, when I started. And I was just fresh off the farm and so naive and had no idea. I had never studied before. I had always just kind of gotten by. 
and it was a horrendous experience. Now, I thought I was working hard. I was living in residence, and and when you compare yourself to the, the people that I was living with, uh, not my roommate, no offense, Dan, but like the, the people on my floor, the people in the building, it appeared to be that that I had my stuff together. I was, I was putting in the hours, uh, more hours than most of the other people. And I did so bad that first year, you guys. I always joke that I'm gonna try to get my transcript so you can see how incredibly terrible that I did. I didn't fail anything, but I should have failed. Like organic chemistry, the only thing that I think I learned was how to draw a benzene ring, which like looks like a stop sign with some extra lines. Six-sided stop sign, <laughs> maybe. Do, do, do I even remember how to do a benzene ring? Maybe. It was a rough experience, um, you know, barely passed by the skin of my teeth, and I just saw this vet school dream flushing down the toilet. I was in it. I was in it for the long haul. So I started second year. I tried to modify my study habits, and I remember I was taking a 300-level class, and it was uh, meat science. And the professor was like the meat scientist of the world. Like when you looked up any sort of research paper, he was always authored on that paper. Like he was the guy. He was the meat scientist of, of, <laughs> of the universe. And it was a terrifying class. Like he would make us sit in a circle every single day in our desks and he would hand out a syllabus at the end of class for the next class with the topics that we're going to be going over and the assigned readings. And then in class, the next day, the next uh, day that we would have that class, he would go through the syllabus one topic at a time. And instead of teaching us, he would say, okay, Cody, tell us about uh, growth promotants. Tell us about uh, bone development, the whatever the required reading was. So if you didn't read and prepare and it was terrifying. He was going to cut you down. So this really terrifying class that that I shouldn't have been taking in second year. And the midterm was an oral midterm. And it, I was terrified for that oral midterm. I studied so hard for it. And I got into the midterm. Each student had to go into his office for about an hour. And he would just... The, the test was, okay, Cody, what do you want to talk about today? So you would have to give him your topic, and then he would just grill you and grill you and grill you until you couldn't answer anymore. And I ended up doing really good on that test. That was like the first window that maybe I could do this. And that also coincided with another amazing experience that I had in second year. I was leaving an animal science class, and there was a, a grad student who actually works for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the agriculture department now. He went on and did a, finished his PhD and did an MBA. Brilliant fellow. Uh, he was originally from Africa. And I just by chance had heard him talking to another group of students about what his uh, study habits were. And he said what he did is he wrote down every, I guess, every point, every piece of, of material that he was supposed to go over into a notebook 
And then he read it over and over and over again until it was like a song in his head. And for me, that was pivotal because I realized how hard somebody was working. And that's all I needed was to know that this was possible. I didn't even know that that was possible, that a human could could just memorize their no, their notes. So that's what I did. I would write out all my notes into a coil notebook. I would highlight the important parts and I would read it over and over and over again until it was like a song in my head. So when I got into an exam, and this is a terrible way for studying for life, an absolute terrible, terrible way for studying for life. But when I got into an exam, I could visualize and see every single line on on my piece of paper whenever I had a question. I just knew where it was in my notes and I knew exactly what I had written down because I had put in the work, but I didn't even know that that was possible. So after that, the, the rest of school was, was really actually quite easy for me. Uh, I, I was able to dig out of the trenches of that atrocious first year and be able to be able to redeem myself, uh, to, to be able to do well on almost every single test and to do well in almost every single class. And that's the only thing that that saved me for sure. So I applied after second year and I didn't get in. I applied after third year and I didn't get in. I applied after fourth year after I graduated and still didn't get in. So I actually took a, a gap year. In retrospect, that gap year was the most special year of my life. I ended up working in a, at a pipeline for the winter, like hauling around a propane tank and surveying 21 kilometers of pipeline. It was a brutal job. It was seven days a week. It was in the middle of winter. It was just an absolute brutal, brutal job. After that job had ended, that's when I married Diana. So we married quite young. And I moved out to Saskatchewan uh, to where the vet school, the only vet school in Western Canada at that time was in a different province. So what I thought that I was going to do was get a Saskatchewan residency and then be able to apply as a Saskatchewan resident. I'd actually, before that, in the fall, traveled to this, uh, to this university. I'd set up an appointment with the academic dean, uh, it was about six hours away from where Diana and I were living. And we drove out six hours. Uh, I had a nine o'clock appointment with him. We left at 3 a.m. And we drove out there and I showed up ready for my appointment. Just I just wanted to talk to him about what could I do? What could I possibly do to potentially get an interview? And he was a no-show that day. Yeah. It ended up working out because one of the admins for acceptance brought me into her office and gave me all kinds of support and and words of advice. And she'd also pop my GPA from the province that I was living in into the ranking. And, and at that point, I was 56th. And then she popped my GPA into the province next to us, the province that I was thinking about moving to. And my GPA was third. So that kind of solidified that I should probably move and I would have a better chance for getting an interview. So I moved out to Saskatchewan after I married Diana. Effectively, we were homeless at the time. Uh, when we got married, we were literally homeless. One of my friends took Diana in and then I moved out to Saskatchewan and found a place to live. 
and started working at a feedlot. And that was spectacular in retrospect as well, because that's where I fell in love with feedlot production and feedlot medicine. For whatever reason, I have no idea why to this day, I ended up getting an interview that year as an Alberta resident. I had I hadn't done anything extra. I hadn't upgraded, but I had gotten an interview and I knew that if I could just get an interview that I could sell myself. Well, I wasn't like 100% positive because I'm not that uh, narcissistic or maybe I am. But I just knew that that was my only shot, that, that if I could just talk to somebody, if I could just talk to these interviewers, that I would be able to show them that I was so incredibly passionate and destined to be a veterinarian. So I had my interview. Do you guys know that um, Eminem song, Lose Yourself? I was like singing that as loud in my head as possible on my way into the, the interview because that, that like line of this is your one chance, like this was my one chance. I had to do this. This I, There was no going back. There was going to be no second chance. I had to do this now. And I went in confidently, interviewed. And at that point, I thought it was probably a 50-50 shot. Weeks go by, I think even a couple months go by, and I get a phone call from the school saying that a letter had been returned. They didn't say what it was. It was just a letter had been returned, and they wanted to confirm my address. And I was already living in that town, so I asked if I could just go pick it up. So Diane and I drive to the vet school, and one of the admin staff hands me a letter in an envelope that had already been opened. And she looked at me and said, don't go anywhere. So I walked around the corner and I opened up the letter and it said, <laughs> I get choked up every time I think about it. And it said that I'd been accepted in, into vet school and I started bawling and I hugged Diana and the admin person had come around the corner. She, she knew what was in the letter. She had sent thousands and thousands of letters out to vet students over the years but I don't think she'd ever seen a vet student open one up so this was her <laughs> this was her chance so I'm blu I'm blubbering like a baby and she comes and uh, sees me and, and I give her a huge hug and that was the start of it that was the the absolute start so the thing that I tell students when I'm talking to them one-on-one -on -one about my experiences is that if you don't expect to fail, then you're just, you're living a dream. You're supposed to fail. This is supposed to be hard. Everything good in life is hard. Marriage, parenting, work, anything of any value in life is hard. And you're going to fail over and over and over again. And you just have to embrace that. You have to embrace that, that suck, as Diana would say. It's so true. Okay. The other thing that I tell students is to, is how important the journey is to embrace the journey that we all get focused on this destination, but the journey is so special. When I look back at all of those hours spent studying, all of that kind of slogging it out in the trenches, 
that is what is the the good stuff. It it really hurts while you're doing it, but that is the absolute good stuff. So just embrace the journey, embrace the failure. And, you know, for some of us, it's going to work out. And for some of us, it's not. But that journey is is life. The, the destination is in life. It, it's, it's the journey. Okay, hopefully that answers some of Aaliyah's questions. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the veterinary job market. This has been weighing extremely heavily on me. Uh, I own uh, four vet practices. We're almost closing on our fifth. I uh, should have a very exciting announcement come July of, a, of another practice acquisition. But we need vets so bad. Every single one of my practices, uh, the cow vet practice, my mixed animal practices, we need veterinarians. And we are killing ourselves trying to figure out this. In my VMA, like my vet med association, in the, the classified ads, there's like 80 or 90 vacant jobs across our province for veterinarians. And a lot of those are in rural mixed practices. And that, there's some people that say that there's a there is a, a glut of veterinarians being graduated. There's lots of new vet schools coming online, but that's not at all what we're seeing. We need more veterinarians, and we're trying to figure that out. and And that is a very scary and systemic problem across the industry right now. It's unfortunate, but you know we're we're talking about how the Canadian veterinary uh, school system is not able to support us. They're, they're just not turning out enough veterinarians that want to go into rural mixed practices that, that are, are capable of practicing on dogs and cats and horses and cows. So we're, we're trying to do things internally to, to try to think creatively and out of the box of how we're going to adjust and, and, help us fix that problem. Some of the things that we're thinking about and executing on is should we be hiring even more vets for some of these practices and have small animal specialists, have large animal specialists, people who just want to work on equine. Oh my goodness, guys, I'm so sorry. My regular shooting camera is uh, has just died. So I just have to set up. This is not going to work at all. Okay, it's working. I'm just going to use my cell phone. The other thing that we're thinking about is, well, and we've executed on, is hiring a full-time locum. So we are just in contract negotiations with a very talented young lady who's left her practice, and we're going to make her a full-time locum. So we're going to send her to uh, wherever we need for two week stints. She's going to work two weeks on one week off or two weeks on and two weeks off and be able to send her into practices that we have need. The other thing that we're thinking about is, is foreign veterinary schools. Uh, we're talking about places like South Africa and, and the UK and Australia, and New Zealand. And what are things that we can do as a business to start to get some traction, uh, in those types of, of job markets to bring veterinarians overseas to help fill these gaps because there just isn't enough domestic supply. 
things that we're talking about is is sending staff over, sending myself over, sending some of our other vets over to places like the University of Glasgow, University of Edinburgh, uh, to create relationships with the deans and the professors to try to create some sort of pipeline for us to be able to access the talented veterinarians that are there. And there certainly is some spectacular vets, but there's also a lot of hurdles. Uh, some of these places that we're talking about, they aren't accredited. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not good quality education. That just means that they don't put the uh, resources into getting accredited uh, for the North American market. There's some job uh, or there's some hoops that need to be jumped through in order for that to happen. One is our, our board exam, this kind of end of four year exam that all the veterinarians in North America write that it's like 600 questions, multiple choice. And, and we write that and then we pass it and it's called our board exams. Some veterinary schools don't require that abroad. So veterinarians who are going to come over here, they, they need to write that. They need to take that. It's expensive. It is certainly a challenge for us. But yeah, I don't know if you guys have any other suggestions of, of what we need to do. I'm super appreciative of the reach that I've been able to get with the, the veterinary schools, uh, with my vlog, with my digital storytelling. And we, we're hoping to actively be able to leverage that as well in order to, to get staff, to get people into our practices. Because these practices are integral into ensuring food safety, ensuring that these communities these are well served with high quality veterinary care. We want to support these veterinarians. We want to support these practices and we want to support these communities and we need veterinarians to do that. So, so it is a huge challenge that, that we're facing right now as a business to get these young, talented veterinarians or even experienced veterinarians into our practices always a challenge. Last thing I want to talk about uh, comes from a, uh, a follower named Katie. She had a question today, and I just love so much that that a lot of the vlog, or sorry, a lot of the podcast fodder is coming from you guys, is coming from the viewers. Uh, I want to answer questions that you guys might have that, that I can provide a little bit of context. So, Katie was asking about animal activism and the stuff that I put out on, on social media. So she said that her veterinary school uh, warns them very much about how things can get misconstrued. A single picture can be torn apart by animal activists. And she wanted to ask my opinion on that and whether or not I ever experienced those types of things. And the answer is no. I don't, I've never been targeted. And you think that like if anybody in the entire world would be targeted, it would be me. Like I'm showing postmortems and, you know, it's sick cows and, you know, factory farms, although all my factory farms are owned by families. So that's kind of a misnomer. But I don't. I just don't get that kind of pushback. Certainly every once in a while on YouTube, I'll get a comment of like people thinking that I'm some sort of crazy guy with an ax chopping up cows for fun. But 
I think if they took one second to dive deeper into my content, they would see that I'm a beef cattle veterinarian who's uh, trying to promote animal health and welfare. And that's exactly why I think I, I'm not going to say get away with it, but that I've, I've really been actively trying to do is I feel like you can post anything on social media as long as the context is there. As long as you have appropriate context around what you're doing, you are then given the social license, although I hate the term social license, but you're given social license to be able to share that story. But if the context doesn't exist around that, then then you, you can't. So I actively work so incredibly hard on the stuff that I'm sharing to provide enough context so people understand what I'm doing. I do think that I also get away with, with a lot of it because of my status as a veterinarian, that I'm not out there profiting, in quotation marks, uh, from, from the use of, of animals for animal agriculture, large-scale animal agriculture, because I'm a vet and I'm, I'm helping animals. So even though I'm part of the system, I think I've put on a pedestal or put outside of the box as to as to what my role is. But I'll give you guys an example. So postmortems, okay? So if somebody says, why are you doing postmortems? That's awful. Look at all those dead cows. Factory farming is terrible. I love those comments. I love those negative comments because it gives me an opportunity to engage. And if I get one of those comments, I also recognize that I've failed at providing enough context in a specific video around why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. So I love to respond with those, not because I'm going to change what they think. And if, if somebody is an activist, uh, you're never going to change their mind. They're very passionate uh, people. Uh, they're certainly coming from, you know, from a good place. They, they truly care about animals. But by engaging in a very professional and positive manner with them online, I'm able to... I think sway the mind, the minds of people who are on the fence. So, for example, with the postmortems, I like to respond, "Oh, we do postmortems because that helps us uh, guide treatments and preventions in the future, and both and in real time, uh, for us to be able to change like vaccines and for us to be able to change protocols, management, nutrition, uh, on arrival antibiotics." all of the different things that we can do as veterinarians and we need the answer by being, uh, by doing the postmortems. And when somebody reads that comment, when they're on the fence about it, they start to recognize and realize that, holy crap, these, these veterinarians are, are out there every single day and somebody's paying for that. Farmers are paying massive amounts of money to make sure that their cattle are well taken care of. And, and look at this guy. He's, he's very passionate about what he's doing and he's taking care of animals in these factory farm settings that it's not just this kind of wild, wild west. So I love those negative comments so much. But I feel like the reason, back to the question, I feel like the reason that I've never been targeted is because I've provided enough context around what I'm doing. I'm not just posting a picture of a, of a dead baby calf, although I have before. I've, I've posted so one of my earliest uh, Instagram photos is of a 
preterm dead baby calf that that was uh, pulled by me at a feed yard, and it was a it was a gruesome sight. It it didn't have any hair. Uh, it you know aesthetically it was awful, but I made sure to provide context around why that happened. Uh, you know, what the implications are around uh, having a, a cow in a feed yard go full term and, and why that that is detrimental to the health of the entire herd. So instead of just posting a picture of a dead baby calf without providing enough context, I provided what I thought was enough medical context around why that happened. You know, what are, why did that happen at all? Why is that baby dead? Why is that actually even a good thing to some extent? It's all about context and positivity. I've never gotten into a fight with, with anybody because once again, you're never going to change their mind. I just stay professional and as positive as possible and just embrace all of the negative comments. I love those negative comments. Bring them on. And maybe I'll eat my shorts one day. Maybe PETA will have my picture up and do a call to action and uh, the army will come after me. But on the flip side, you guys are there. You guys who I've provided enough context to are there to, to support me and to be part of that. So I just encourage people to tell their story, but to tell their story with the appropriate amount of context that just rules out all sort of doubt. And you're going to fail. I fail every single day not providing enough context around what I'm doing. But I gradually get better and I'm cognizant of it. And if, if that is, you know, kind of my mantra, then I should be successful in, in staving off the crazy vegans. No offense, vegans. Okay, that's it for episode three. Thank you guys so much. Please subscribe and please leave me a review. It helps with the rankings and I appreciate it so much. Like my heart is filled with love for everybody who's left a review because um, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the time that you would take out of your day to help this little project along. Take care.